listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. teaching text today comes from Acts 17, 16 through 32. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if, needed, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you have your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right. And you can remain seated. Happy Soupy Sunday to all of you. I feel like I already need to take a shower. The air outside and even inside is just thick. And I'm wearing a jacket because my lady likes me in a jacket. So wear the jacket. (laughs) This was a week where I was excited to preach. I usually am. But this one is going to be fun, for me at least. It's fun because I'm working out some ideas that are new to me that I think may be helpful, I hope will be helpful to you. And we're just going to explore this uh, together. I want you to know that this sermon is a little bit on the philosophical side. uh, And I admit from the beginning that it's very possible that I could be out of my depth but we're going to give it a shot anyway, okay? Um, What I want to do today is I want to consider the nature of knowledge, of knowledge. How do we know anything? 
How do we know the things that we say that we know? What can we know? And this whole topic of knowledge is summarized by a fancy word that I'm only going to use one time in this sermon. I'm going to use it right now, and that fancy word is epistemology. Epistemology has to do with the methods of knowing things and the scope of those things that we can know and so on. And I'm going to tell you right now the three points that I'm going to make in this sermon, and I hope that in telling these to you early, you're going to have some like hangers to put the points on that follow. So the three points that I'm going to make today as we explore this topic of knowledge is one, anything we know, we only know in part. Keep that in your mind. This is a hanger for the sermon that you can put the clothes on that come. Anything that we know, we know in part. Therefore, number two, everyone exercises some degree of belief. And when I use the word belief, I'm using it interchangeably with the word faith today. Everyone, because we only know in part, everyone exercises some degree of belief or faith. And the third thing that I will ultimately get at is the Christian life does not ask for blind faith, but can be built on the knowledge of God. So let's review it again. Anything we know, we know in part. Everyone exercises degrees of belief. And the Christian life does not ask for purely blind faith, but can be built on the knowledge of God. I want to begin with a a quote from uh, the great Anglican writer J.I. Packer. He said, I ask you for the moment to stop your ears to those who tell you there is no road to knowledge about God and come a little way with me and see. So why are we talking about this? I hope that you are familiar with this passage in Acts chapter 17 that Jessica just read for us. It's a a famous one. Paul in Athens reasoning with them about this, this altar to the unknown God that they have. And knowledge as a theme emerges directly from the text. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. We see this next idea in verse 23 and verse 30. Paul says, As I walked around, I even found an altar to an unknown God. Unknown. So you are ignorant. You are not in the know about the very things that you worship. Or in verse 30, he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, our failure to be in the know. This is the whole thing that started it for me. It was when I was reading verse 24. Paul is beginning his sermon proper, his exposition to these people. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And what struck me is that he did not begin this sermon with, I think. Nor did he begin it with, I believe. Nor did he say, From my perspective, the God who made the world, and so on and so forth. Paul presents this information to the Athenians as knowledge. He's presenting to them a description of reality. He goes to verse 31, and now he gets into more language that has to do with evidence, truth, knowledge, reality. He says, He has given proof of this, that Jesus has been elevated as the one through whom God will judge the earth, to everyone... By raising him from the dead. Paul is not representing belief or hope or wishes, but when he speaks to the Athenians, he is coming from a posture of representing knowledge. 
Uh, knowledge. What is knowledge? This comes from the philosopher Dallas Willard. He said, a working idea of knowledge derived from how we actually deal with it in real life is this. We have knowledge of something when we are representing it as it actually is. Knowledge involves truth or accuracy of representation. But it must also be truth based upon adequate evidence or insight. Don't worry, a shortened definition is coming. The evidence or insight comes in various ways depending on the nature of the subject matter. So here's how I have simplified Willard's definition of knowledge. That knowledge is trustworthy information about reality derived from reliable sources. Knowledge is trustworthy information about reality that's derived from reliable sources. So when we ask someone, well, how do you know? We're seeking to confirm that what they purport is true matches reality, that they are truly in the know. For example, if someone says to you they're painting the wall beige, you might say, well, how do you know? They could respond, well, I went to the wall, I saw the beige can, I saw them dip the brush in the can and put the beige paint on the wall. And they might respond, yes, but why beige? And that is a question that we can't answer today. It's a question for the ages. All of us insist that our professionals, our doctors and our lawyers and our builders are people who are knowledgeable. We insist that they are people with trustworthy information about reality that has been derived from reliable sources. Not just that they are good at guessing or lucky or charismatic. You do not want to go into surgery and the person holding the scalpel says, I think I know where your appendix is. You don't want the person who just fin finished building a parking garage to say, I'm pretty sure it's going to hold all those cars. People have died for lack of knowledge. And knowledge is all about an accurate description of reality that's derived from reliable sources. We trust our professionals when we believe that they know what they are doing and they've learned reality from reliable sources. So how does knowledge differ from belief? How does knowledge differ from faith? Dallas Willard again. He says belief has no necessary tie or relationship to truth. No necessary relationship to truth, to good method, or to evidence. We can believe what is false, and we often do this. Now, this is the really key insight to his definition of belief that I'm going to play with today. To believe something involves a readiness to act as if what is believed were so. So if I really do believe in God, I will tend to act as if He existed. If I believe that the Bible and the church are unique sources of reliable information, I will tend to honor them and give them careful attention. Okay, so my simplified definition of belief right alongside my definition of knowledge. Uh, knowledge is trustworthy information about reality derived from reliable sources, while I'm saying faith is acting as if what I believe is reality. So he gives the example of the person who believes in God is going to act as if God existed. Some of you exercise your belief with relationship to your favorite sports team. You believe that if you wear that shirt, your team is going to win. 
I think about uh, if you ever watched Parks and Recreation. Do you remember the reasonable lists? Anybody? Just like all of my jokes, only three of you, four of you. <laughs> the reasonableists believe that Zorp is coming to smote the earth with his volcano mouth, and so what they must do is go into the park and play wooden flutes. They believe they are demonstrating a readiness to act. In this demonstration of belief or faith, belief is about behavior. It's about what we do. Now hear this. Sometimes we believe what we don't believe what we know. So somebody knows, they have the knowledge that smoking is bad for your body, but you smoke anyway. You don't believe, you don't act on what you know. Or you know you are not going to win the Mega Millions jackpot lottery, but you continue to buy those tickets anyway. Or the example of, you know, your lucky shirt. You believe, you act as if wearing that shirt is going to help your team win. But if you're really honest, I'm not, I'm not asking you to do this today. It's when the Lord leads you to this place, you could confess you know there's no direct causal relationship between you wearing the shirt and your team winning. Sometimes we don't believe what we know. It is ideal when our beliefs, the things that we act on, are built on knowledge. Knowledge can strengthen our belief. When the things that we believe are built on knowledge, it makes it easier to explain to other people, here's why I think it's justifiable or reasonable to act in this way as if the things that I believe match reality. It's, it's ideal when our beliefs are built on knowledge. Now, if you'll return to the first point that I made in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 affirms, we only know in part. And anyone who's intellectually honest will have no difficulty admitting this, that we don't have comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of all things. We only know in part. I was reading a dinosaur book to my son Gideon, and it said, you know, such and such dinosaur lived around X million years ago. And I'm just thinking, they're presenting this as Knowledge as a description of reality. Well, how do they know that? Were they there? No. Do we have 100% confidence that this dating matches reality? Is it absolute truth? Well, I'm not sure that even they would say that. But they presented as knowledge what they understood based upon the evidence at their disposal. And I have no issue with that. They presented as knowledge what they understood based on the evidence at their disposal to be true. And this underscores my second point. Everything we know, we only know in part. Therefore, everyone must exercise degrees of belief. So some new medical intervention rolls out. You're very rarely going to hear the people who made it say, we know with 100% certainty that this works. They're probably not going to say that. What they will say is, well, clinical trials have shown that in 9 out of 10 cases, dot, dot, dot. Or they may say something like, the American Medical Association strongly recommends, dot, dot, dot. What they're attempting to do is they're demonstrating the knowledge available to them, or they're leaning on the strength of professionals who we trust to deal faithfully with knowledge as an attempt to convince you that such knowledge is sufficient evidence for belief. In other words, you would buy their product. Now, as I was writing this and researching this week, I read a story about a new drug 
that was uh, before the Food and Drug Administration this week. It's a, it's a drug that's supposed to help with people with multiple sclerosis, a huge need. And then when it came to an FDA vote, they voted to approve the drug eight to six. So it's going to get the FDA, you know, stamp of approval. And there's the backing of science behind it, but we know they're presenting as knowledge based on the evidence at their disposal, what they think could be sufficient evidence for you, whether to believe in the product. And it is up to you and to me as the consumer, say, is the evidence sufficient? Do I believe the case they've made for knowledge such that it's going to inspire my belief in this product? We only know things in part. Therefore, everyone, I would say, even in the sciences, must exercise some degree of belief. So what is knowledge? Knowledge is trustworthy information about reality that's derived from reliable sources. What is belief? Belief is acting as if what I believe is reality. Everything that we know, we only know in part. Therefore, every one of us exercises some degree of belief. And it leads me to the big question that I want to ask this morning is, can the Christian faith be a subject of knowledge? Can the Christian faith be a subject of knowledge? Now, go to any street in America and ask 10 people what they think about this question. I'm going to guess the average you know, person's going to say, I don't think it is. I don't know if it's 7 out of 10, 9 out of 10, depends on the city. It may be 4 out of 10, it may be 10 out of 10. You know, if you go to 81st and Lewis, you may get one answer. If you go to 15th and Peoria, you may get another answer. Depends on the city that you're in. But I'm, I'm going to guess that for many people, they think, no, can the Christian faith be a subject of knowledge, something you know? I don't think that's true. Well, why might people have that perspective? Well, they'd say, well, that belongs to a bucket of things that we would call opinion or conjecture or a bucket that's different than knowledge. Faith doesn't really fit in these terms. And one reason I would say for the, the uh, one reason people would push back on this is they would say that they've experienced people of faith not to be the most intellectually curious on the block and at times not the most intellectually honest. And I'd say one reason for, for the absence of intellectual honesty or curiosity of the church or people's perspective of the church goes back to history. Some of you may know the story of Galileo. Galileo in the 16th century affirmed the perspective of Copernicus that the sun revolved, no, that the earth revolved around the sun. And this was uh, not in alignment with church teaching. And as a result, in the story that we have been told, Galileo was banished and excommunicated, and he was tortured for this perspective. And all of this affirms what everybody has always known, that the church, that people of faith are anti-science. Well, it turns out the story is slightly more complicated than that. And the telling of that story primarily stems from two propagandist books that were written 300 years after the fact, written for the purpose of arguing that faith is anti-intellectual. And there was more to the story. And most modern historians uh, disagree with the propagandist's telling of the story of Galileo. But the story has been used as propaganda. It's been employed since the late 19th century to discredit any supposed knowledge that might come from faith and to argue that people of faith, that Christians, the religious, are unreasonable, unthinking, anti-science hooligans. 
as an added benefit. They may have as their ulterior motives at times that if we can discredit their sources of knowledge, we can also discredit the political implications that people of faith maintain. Well, in time, this propagandist view that Christians are anti-intellectual, that Christians are anti-science, functioned prophetically. And many Christians felt forced to choose between faith and the sciences. They saw this as a dichotomy, and you must pick your sides. For many, they chose faith and felt this spiritual religious obligation, this conviction that they must close their ears to the discoveries of science, and as a result, they let their thinking muscles atrophy. That's created a culture among some, though we must be honest and say not among all believers, of a lack of intellectual curiosity among Christians. The thing that I would like to affirm for all of us who are trying to navigate this world of science and faith and knowledge and all of this is that all truth is God's truth. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Psalm 24. God is not, oh, Darwin, no. He's like, oh my goodness, they've discovered the next thing. God is not surprised. All truth is God's truth. We don't need to be afraid of the discoveries of science, and we would also do well to read the Bible on the Bible's own terms. Though we'd read the Bible as what it is meant to be and not trying to be a scientific textbook to answer the curiosities of 21st century Westerners, post-enlightenment. The Bible is not trying to be that. Now, I want to say at the same time that these same Enlightenment thinkers who were buying into and propagating this anti-intellectual view of Christianity in defense of science committed their own crimes against it, in my opinion. And they further alienated faith and science from one another. And they did this by ruling out all miracles and the possibility of the supernatural. And they look at the Bible. They look at the accounts of Jesus. They see miracles. They see the supernatural. And they say, well, this is just a lot of hogwash because that kind of thing doesn't happen. But this actually violates, from my perspective, the scientific method. The scientific method, as Perry Blake taught me, begins with observation, and it makes its way toward conclusions. What they have done is drawn conclusions and forced them on all observations. I would describe that as a lack of intellectual humility. But let's return to this question. Can the Christian faith be a subject of knowledge? We're taking it back to Acts chapter 17. And what I, what I want to suggest to you is that this is precisely what the Apostle Paul presumes to be possible. Knowledge is, is trustworthy information about reality derived from reliable sources. Therefore, you need evidence to make knowledge claims. And when Paul is standing before those curious people in Athens, and he presents as knowledge what he understands about God, he does not appeal to their feelings, nor does he appeal to his own. He doesn't appeal to his own wishes or preferences, nor even to his own conversion experience. He doesn't say, now I can't argue with your brains, but Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He doesn't even mention it in this conversation. 
But when he stands before the Athenians who were curious and understanding the nature of their world, who wanted to ascertain true knowledge, Paul appeared to two sources of public information. He, he makes this argument from the natural world. And he does this again in Romans chapter 1. That nature itself makes a case for belief in the Creator. And, and we could derive from that case that we are made in this God's image. And then secondarily, he makes his case based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He appeals not to their hearts or in emotions or needs, but to their intellect and their minds. He does not ask them to take his word for it. Uh, he, he says simply, he reasons with them on these two fronts of the natural world and the evidence that the natural world gives, but he bases all of it, most importantly, on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he talked about proofs of the resurrection. And for these Athenians, they're close enough geographically, they're close enough temporally, that if they were motivated to learn more and see, is there any objective reason to believe that his claims about the resurrection of this one man in Judea from the dead are true, they could go and do their own investigative study. For Paul, the historical reliability and the verifiability of the resurrection is central to his presentation of the Christian worldview as knowledge. This perspective is derived from reliable sources. He says elsewhere, he, he stakes all of his ministry, all of his theological claims on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a chapter you should, you should go and study and learn by heart. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are a sorry lot. All of it for us hinges on the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is why in 15, 1 through 3, he goes to labors to show the number of people to whom Jesus, after his death and resurrection, appeared to people, saying, at one time he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. The resurrection, according to Paul, not only validates Jesus and everything he said, but it also retroactively validates the story of which Jesus saw himself as a part. This validates the story of creation, of fall, of covenant. It, it underscores the, the objective reality of what was happening in the church and discipleship and the hope of new creation. The most important question for Paul as he's making a reasoned defense of his knowledge is, was Jesus raised from the dead or not? And it's the most important question that any of us can wrestle with too. Because if in the middle of history one person said, hey, by the way, I'm going to be publicly executed in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then it happens, we now live in a world in which someone was raised from the dead and they called their own shot. It's like if you remember, I don't know if, if Bray is in here, but my friend Bray shared his story <laughs> a couple of months ago, and he was learning for the first time. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he's talking to somebody in the YMCA, and he's like, hey, did you ever hear Jesus was raised from the dead? Like, yeah. I was like, what do you think about that? That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> Paul was not, and the Scriptures do not compel of us completely blind faith. What Paul is insisting here, what Paul is doing here is demonstrating that there can be knowledge of God. Or we could say it differently, that there are proofs for the reality of God, chief among them, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
You think back to the stories in, in the Old Testament. Abram did not follow God on blind faith. He left Ur of the Chaldeans, picked up and went to a new land because God appeared to him and said, go. That story turned out pretty great for Abram. You think of Moses. Moses does not go back to a place where he's a fugitive to Egypt and stand in front of the man in power just because he felt like doing it. He went on faith. He went because God appeared to him. He had the objective knowledge of what happened to him. They're like, well, you know, someone can have different perspectives on that. I was thinking about, ask a woman who's given birth. Well, how do you know you gave birth? And you're like, do you want me to tell you? By the way, it seems like women do that. Like women who have given birth get together, and they're like four minutes into conversation the first time they're meeting, and they're immediately sharing birth stories. I don't understand it. Abram doesn't go on blind faith. Moses didn't go on blind faith. Mary didn't navigate her own pregnancy on blind faith. The repeated appearances of the angels. She knew what she had and had not experienced in life. She knew she hadn't been intimate with Joseph, and she knows what's growing in her body. This is not purely blind faith. But I would like to emphasize to you today, and this is a first conversation is that we don't have to turn off our brains as Christians. That turning off our brains doesn't reflect some kind of theological courage. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. We don't have to turn off our brains and think that God is inviting us to follow Him completely in the dark. Even for the person who hasn't heard the message of Jesus and His resurrection, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. There is no sound. They have no voice. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Paul in Romans 1 says that the witness of creation means that all people will be without an excuse. Even for the person in the remote tribe, they've not been left completely in the dark. Everything that we know, we know in part. Therefore, everyone exercises some degrees of belief. But I want to say to you that there is reasonable evidence to consider. Paul, in this first conversation with the Athenians, about which they say, we'd like to hear more from you on this matter, makes a case for two objective realities to establish the nature of God, the knowledge of God, the argument from the natural world, and his central argument is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Everything we know, we know in part. Everyone exercises degrees of belief, and we all have evidence to consider. And I would say we ought to also consider the evidence of our own lives. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or. Some of you couldn't stand to make an intellectual debate or, or, or stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a reasoned debate. I can't even. But you know that you know what Jesus has done in your life. You know, but for God, where would you be? There are numerous kinds of knowing in life. The woman who gives birth, the person who gets married, the person who loses their job. There are tacit kinds of knowledge that we gain in life that can't be recreated in a laboratory experience, but doesn't mean it's, a, it's, it's illegitimate knowing. And we ought to also consider the evidence of our own lives, how I've proved him. Or and, or. and on top of that whole pile, 
According to the Apostle Paul, the chief evidence that we ought to consider in entertaining can knowledge of God be ascertained by human beings is the reality that Christ has died and Christ is risen. And this, those of us who put our faith in Jesus, is sufficient grounds to say, I believe. Now, I have so much more that I want to say. And the, the things on the cutting room floor of this sermon are like a small mountain. Um, for now, I, I want us to, to leave with this consideration from Jesus when he's asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. May it be so among us. Paul in his letter to the Philippians said, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face towards you and give you peace.